Hey folks, it's Unsung, it's part four of our REM, we've done it all, we've, we've done it all. <laughs> saga? Yes, yeah, it's a saga, yeah, it's a saga. The REM saga is complete today, where we talk about new adventures in hi-fi. Yeah. So the last three episodes we've talked about everything else REM has ever done, so if you're coming in at this point, then You need cool. some context, yeah. what the fuck's wrong with you? Maybe, or not, maybe just like a record and you're like... This is, this is all I need to just yeah, That's a very episode, erratic right. podcast approach that you're doing there. Is this your first time? No, but like, it's like, maybe like, I know the band and I only like one album, and this is the album, so I'm just going to go straight to that episode, maybe. Do you think we should have done this in a big four hour Joe Rogan special? Jogan? <laughs> <laughs> Ro Jogan? No. Only, only he can get away with that. He doesn't get away with it. He doesn't get exactly. Doesn't get exactly. <laughs> yeah, nobody listens to a four-hour podcast and a four-hour sitting. You know, <laughs> uh, some people do. I mean, I have to admit, I did listen to the Alex Jones Joe Rogan episode with my fucking jaw hanging on, <laughs> like for four fucking hours. Like, I felt I had a, a responsibility to do it. <laughs> anyway, that to one side, we are going to talk about new adventures in high five from 1996. <laughs> Which I've chosen as R.E.M.'s unsung album. I do just want to reiterate that Reveal gets a very, very Hmm. bad rap. Um, I don't think Reveal is R.E.M.'s finest moment. I think they were a little bit over the hill. Sorry to be ageist, but they were recording in stodgy ways and a little bit confused about what kind of band are we. They, They went back to guitars with Accelerate, but I, I think Reveal proportionally probably gets more abuse and is in the balance of how good is this album compared to how much shit does it take, it's probably actually the most unsung. Mm-hmm. But I'm not about to go to bat for fucking Reveal because it's it's Reveal. I am going to go to bat for New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which sits sort of, I, I wouldn't even say mid-table because as I've discovered, it sits kind of like upper table. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know, 2024 West Ham. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's there. It's like I don't know, twenty nineteen ever, and I fucking don't. It's going to get a Champions League place. Yeah, I fucking hate the EPL. Yeah. So, um, but it's it's one of those albums that's in or about the money. You know, the, it's in or about the prizes, mm-hmm. but it's not that often getting the prizes. It's it might not get bronze, but it'll definitely get a participation medal. Aye, aye, it'll it'll get picked up. By a better agent um, But it's uh, Yeah It's not automatic for the people Certainly It's not um, Murmur I guess Which I saw topping a couple of lists By pure fucking hipsters It's not Out of Time Which was just a massive Breakthrough commercial success It's not Monster Which I mean I know you're not keen on it But I think it's a fucking Excellent album Yeah It is New Adventures in Hi-Fi And it's a fucking Strange fish mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about it a wee bit Okay um, Michael Stipe's favourite REM record Yeah there you go. That's high praise to start with. It, it leans very nicely into his voice and the country feel of, of what he often does, I think. Yeah, plus, spoiler here, a lot of this album was recorded live, either in soundcheck or during actual shows. And I think, from experience, maybe you're the same, when you're recording a song, you tend, no matter how good the song is, to be influenced by the experience of the recording. And if you have a particularly arduous experience or exhausting experience with a song, it puts you off it as a musician. The thing is, with this album, Michael Stipe did not have to labour and overtake after take after take in a studio trying to get a line, trying to redo a line, trying to change a line. These were live records. Was there overdubs? 
There are overdubs, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, once you've got that master take to, to tape, you're like, oh, thank fuck. And I think for him, this would have still sounded fresh. Michael Stipe could have gone back to this record and listened to it, and it would have still felt urgent. It wouldn't have felt overworked. There wouldn't be bits in it where he was like, oh, fuck. Well, there might be, but the fact is, he wasn't saying fuck because he spent 10 hours in the studio and was just totally burnt out and had to go home. It was just a live take. And they're very good live takes. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you hear it, you're like, fucking hell, so this is effectively half of this is a live album. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, so I think that probably colours his perspective on it. And I think, I suspect that that's more true of vocalists anyway, because vocals are such a fucking frustrating thing to mm-hmm. try and get right. You know, they really, everything's a frustrating thing to try and get right. But vocals in particular are a really annoying thing to try and nail. Mm -hmm. And if you're fighting against the song, you never fucking want to hear it again, you know? Yeah. So this was the last album with Bill Berry, as we mentioned, uh, founder member of the band, End of an Era. R.E.M. actually, on the back of this, re-signed with Warner for a a reputed 80 million. Mm -hmm. Although the band have said that that figure was basically fabricated by the the, the media. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a lot of money anyway. An interesting quote that I found about this album was in Discover Music, and it says, Arguably less immediate and less accessible, New Adventures in Hi-Fi is a sprawling white album-esque affair clocking in at 65 minutes. However, while it acquired some time and commitment from the listener, the record's contents were rich, compelling, and frequently stunning. Now, you're a Beatles fan. I'm not really a big Beatles fan. Mm. I don't hate them, but I'm not a fan. How do you feel about the comparison to the white album? I think the white album... It's, it's quite it's quite well it's quite sprawling it's also quite inconsistent I don't think I'd compare that to this no 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 see I brought this to the table but I actually have to say that revisiting this it's more inconsistent than I remember mm-hmm. I'm just trying to be really honest about this as yeah, I said the White it, Album's different inconsistent though it's like four different songwriters doing their own thing yeah, you know what I mean? yeah that's right. true mm-hmm. that's true aye. um the recording approach to this was very unorthodox so R.E.M. were mm-hmm. on tour for Monster and they decided uh, partly inspired by Radiohead I think at one point to take eight tracks and do recordings as often as they could of the things they were doing at Soundcheck and backstage and just demoing things and actually write a record during the process of touring um, the Monster Tour we should bear in mind was the first tour they'd done since Green so they'd been away from touring for a long time so touring again was novel to them and they wanted to capture that so they wrote a lot of these things on the road and it really has a kind of road movie quality to it the photography for the album for example is very significant the the cover art of the album is very significant the, the length of the album I think reflects the sprawling nature of a tour mm-hmm. to some extent but yeah, like so you'll, you'll find there's tracks on this we'll, we'll, we'll mention it when we talk about the song But there's tracks that were done uh, during the sound checks There was tracks that are just takes live with the audience there I think there's one track from backstage And then there was four that were done at Bad Animals Studios in Seattle You know, I think for singles really To try and get them like properly hi-fi Wikipedia had a quote in it that said uh, Fans generally regard it as the band's last great record Before a perceived artistic decline During the late 90s and early 2000s Now we covered that in the last episode I mean I on balance that's true yeah it's probably true as we said it's you know maybe a little bit cruel at points but yeah maybe overall lots of retrospectives have reappraised this album as one of the best it's acquired a little bit of a cult following which I think is quite nice I am going to do a low key flex and we're going to do this in real time Mark I own the special edition of this mm. album check it out was this released at the time oh Jesus 
<laughs> I'll include that bump in the mix. This is this is not the twenty fifth anniversary release. No, this is this is this the contemporaneous mm. special edition cool. CD box thing. So if you slide yeah. that out, it's got a really cute kind of diamond thing. It's very like yeah. reclaimed cardboard I'll with like a, it it's, uh, you slide it out at the bottom. Yeah, there you go. Gravity will do the rest, and it, it, so it's got like a screen printed cover, and then it's really tactile hard cover book like. Yeah. Kind of kind of fawn coloured book it sort of reminds me of like an Edward Gorey book yeah. or something like that like, but cool. it, it's full of the, the photography from that tour uh-huh. and it really like if you're in a band mm. it does beautiful justice to that weird intimacy of being in a band backstage out the window of a bus cool shit you're going by mm-hmm. the kind of blurred motion pictures of, of roads and people and it's a really really interesting addition of, of the album and I think it's like especially interesting because that travelogue aspect of the album is so intertwined with what it is, with the way it was recorded, with the subject of the songs, with the sound of the songs. I just think it's a, it's a really interesting aesthetic project yeah. that, that came together really, really nicely. It is, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So um, it actually it was released on cassette as well. Uh, which I don't have, but uh, on the cassette as a, a, and not on the vinyl. It was a double vinyl, not on the on the vinyl, but on the cassette. For some reason, they decided to call it the high side and the fi side. Mm-hmm. So New Adventures and Hi Fi had like a high cassette and a fi cassette, and the tracks were split uh, based on that as well. The high side, track by track, shall we? First tune, how the West was won and where it got is. Recorded the Bad Animal Studios in Seattle because they wanted to kick off with something a wee bit more pristine. A weirdly languid and beautifully understated song mm. has a vocal thing in it that Michael Stipe went for where he just goes, ah! <laughs> and it's such a strange musical decision but has become like iconic for fans of the band like it's great it works really well it's just very fucking odd um, the, the tune itself the, the verses and things in particular uh, showcase how good his voice was at a lower range because mm-hmm. I think Michael Stipe is sort he's of, a baritone singer exactly mm-hmm. but the lower he goes he's got such a warmth like so much personality in his voice at that range it also the, the, the really sparse piano in it I think somehow conjures images of the West yeah it's a, it's a very I've written here it's moody Americana it's got a strange synth in it in places but um, the bass kind of mooches around in the in the backdrop it's got some oddly chromatic piano passages mm-hmm. yeah it's quite understated and it's got nice backing vocals in the chorus too it is but it does conjure a lot of this record conjures up the idea of the West and the desert and you yeah. know the travel through the the country. You know, Can't, I mean, when you hear how the West was won and where it got is, and you think about Murmur era REM, what fucking journey the band's been on, mm. even just to this point, is so different. Mm. Um, the second track in it, the wake up bomb, is literally like a wake up bomb. I look good in the glass pack. Yeah. 
okay, the album's going to get going now, and it bursts in. Uh, recorded live in South Carolina during a show, big, fuzzy, energetic alt-rock, probably quite consistent with Monster, you know, they were touring Monster at the time, if maybe even a wee bit fluffier than Monster. The T-Rex are explicitly referenced in the lyrics to this song. Yeah, it does, it has a lot mm. of T-Rex in it. That kind of glam mm-hmm. thing that was in Monster is here, but I think this is almost a little bit more major key. Like the Who. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, mm. that's not a bad example. Aye, aye. Mm. Um, third one, New Test Leper. Recorded at Bad Animals in Seattle again. Uh, I think one of the highlights musically when I'd said to people that we were doing this album they singled that that song out mm-hmm. or Waltz Time 3-4 yeah it's a cool song it's got a back to that kind of country Americana vibe got some of the jangle from the first the first few records mm-hmm. and the arrangement it does yeah I've written it's, it's kind of REM by the numbers in places, which is fine, you know. It doesn't feel as hollow as some of the stuff they did afterwards, yeah. where it's very much paint by the numbers, like, you know, and around the sun when they do an REM thing, they're doing an REM thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I really like the narrative arc in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I can only assume that they were going through the Bible Belt. There's a lot of like references to I love Jesus and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and it's got like a progression through a little story, just a snapshot. It's not really got a beginning and an end, but it has got a journey. And there's something really nice about it. Mm. It really draws you in. Um, the track Undertow, uh, recorded live in Boston during the show, has a really desert rock fuzz quality to it. And loads of really interesting guitar stuff in this. Like Peter Buck is living his best self here like mm-hmm. he's he's having fun Yeah, and it's very, very interesting. But see, if you listen to the headphones, you hear all these little pan mutes and all these little effects that he's doing using the amp and mm. squeals and, yeah, very, very interesting arrangement. Lumber and bass tone reminds me of Nirvana. Oh, yeah? Yeah, uh, and the middle eight has kind of got that feel to it as well. Um, I think sometimes on this record it becomes quite clear that Kurt was definitely influenced by Michael Stipe's voice. Mm-hmm. It's just some of the phrasings, yeah. you know, and some yeah. of the... When he's doing his much more melodic stuff, when Kurt was doing the more melodic stuff, you can hear some of Michael Stipe coming in, which is quite interesting. But yeah, it's a, it's a good song. Um, it's probably a bit too long for me. Just a, doesn't need that third verse, you know. I would agree. It is. It mm. is a little bit long. However, I think Mike Mills needs some credit on this song because his backing vocal is what makes that chorus.
mm-hmm. and it's actually really quite high up his, his counter melody in the, in the background and it, it really keeps it alive the fifth track Ebo the Letter Uh, recorded at Bad Animals again in Seattle it was going to be a, a single um, one of the greatest songs of my teenage years I, it really is one of the it's diff- a class song yeah. I, I absolutely love it it features Patti Smith yep tastes like fear think it was everything the record label did not expect <laughs> uh, even the video the way they did the video it's like them kind of backlit by these kind of green twinkly lights it's very very understated Patti Smith I think is getting on a bus in, mm-hmm. in the video and it was not particularly MTV friendly and MTV did try and run with it because people were really into it mm-hmm. but it just was so antithetical to what they were trying to do yeah. you know like fucking I, I don't know what was 1996 it wasn't like Alien Ant Farm but if you can imagine <laughs> the kind of stuff that was kicking around in 1996 they were like oh come on mm-hmm. I fucking love this song I mean I mentioned all the personal significance this album has the train journey the the first girlfriend the first breakup all that nervous teenage energy and this song is everything it's all of that Mm -hmm. and I think there's some beautiful lyrics in it as well like um, even I mean the way it starts look up what do you see all of you and all of me fluorescent and starry some of them they surprise and he's so it could have been so clunky it's hard to even say mm-hmm. and it just flows so beautifully it's not that rapid fire thing that he does on like end of the world as we know it it's almost spoken word it's almost enablers but yet it's musical at the same time mm-hmm. I mean I think it's like, like honestly I think this song's a work of art it's a really it's a really nice laid back song it's got big alt country vibes for me um, you see the Ebo the Ebo well. feels like a cello when it comes in which is yeah, a really nice touch yeah. Yeah, and the organ is lovely too. Hey, here's the thing, Colin. Thank you for all your contributions to this episode and helping us with the facts. Mm-hmm. But uh, Colin, aside from buying waistcoats and floral cuffed blouses to look like Peter Buck, also went straight out and bought an Ebo. <laughs> yeah, an Ebo is a cool thing. They're loud as hell, though, man. Yeah, hard to control. Yeah, uh-huh. they do it really well on this. Uh, but yeah, I, I like Patty Smith's backing vocal as well. Yeah, it's great. Uh, adds a lot to it. What a fucking mm-hmm. voice, man. Yeah. Honestly, just that right age where she had that kind of Tom Wade's character coming through. Yeah. Um, the sixth track, Leave. Very long song mm-hmm. Very long song it's Very mournful as well I fucking love this song mm-hmm. It takes its time To get going as well Nothing can bring me closer 
recording during the sound check in Atlanta, Georgia. It was actually overdubbed afterwards, and I think it's Bill Berry that plays the acoustic guitar in it mm-hmm. in the overdubs. Um, basically, a carol arm motif. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was pretty out there for a band like REM, basically like a loop pedal mm-hmm. and a carol arm motif, like woo woo mm-hmm. woo, like really odd, but. I found this song incredibly inspiring. You see, when I, when I was younger and I was trying to write music, I was chasing all these kind of melodic lines, thinking, oh, this melodic line needs to change, it needs to keep the song moving. And actually, what this song showed you is that you can have a very simple melody, in this case, basically one and a half notes, and just change the roots underneath it. And the root changes do a lot of the work to change your perspective on that melody. Mm -hmm. And so that car alarm going all the way through this song, while all those beautiful melancholy root note changes take place, and it gives it all of that personality. I I, I really like it. It's Mm -hmm. it's a bold statement, but I think they pulled it off really, really well. I like the guitar tones on it. They're really big and clangy, you know, quite alt-rocky. Yeah. The, the siren gives it a kind of hypnotic feel. It does. You know, Michael Stipe's vocal in it is very like maximalist as well. He's like, he sounds quite pained. Yeah. That's what keeps me. That's what keeps me. That's what keeps me down. Is it a female backing vocal in the mix? As well, I'm not sure. See, the thing is, though, sometimes Mike Mills, when he does his backing vocal, it's quite high. Gets to those yeah. ranges. Uh. It's because a nice touch, anyway. Uh, so, what would be the five side if you had the cassette, which not many of us do? Uh, track seven, Departure, recorded live in Michigan. Yeah, I, I really like the song. It's a very direct song for, mm. for R.E.M. It's kind of like snapping things back into like immediacy if you were not too keen on leave. It's really nice how the accent on that first riff, like so the riff starts in with no accompaniment and you're mentally sort of place the accent somewhere. But then when the drums in, come in, mm. it offsets where you kind of tended to think the accent was. I like getting messed with in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Stipe does that scatty rapid fire vocal thing. That kind of, mm. I know you're not a big fan. I don't of like it. it, yeah. But I think Mike Mike Mills kind of makes this tune again with the backing vocals. I think they give it the majority of the movement. Yeah, the chorus. And bass, his bass tone as well like is mighty on this song. It's brilliant, which really carries this song for me. The vocals are a, are a turn off in the, in the verses, but the good ending as well. The vocals might be a turn off stylistically. In terms of their subject matter, it sort of conveys the flurry of activity, almost like a time lapse of going on tour. You know, it's like six o'clock, blah, blah, blah. And it's about like getting up, getting on tour, get to this, get to mm-hmm. the plane, get to the train station, get to that. There's like a functionality to the style of those vocals mm-hmm. that is sort of representative of the subject matter as well. Departure, obviously. Yeah. Um, Better Sweet Me, the eighth track. Uh, recorded during a sound check in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
actually the song sounds dead weedy until the choruses come yeah, in. Yeah, so I said it brings it to life. Yeah, the choruses mm. really sp- like, like kick the song up a bit. The verse is kind of light on the hookiness. I think it's actually the pre-chorus in this that probably has all the beautiful writing in it. Um, I will say, though, that this is what I was hinting at prior, going back to this record. Actually, songs like this, I realised I don't like them as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't have the staying power of some of the other songs in the record, for sure. The chorus is fun. The middle eight is also fun. His voice sounds kind of weathered, which I quite like the tone of it in this song. But yeah, it's even got an unresolved ending, mm-hmm. which yeah. I'm usually a fan of, but it doesn't quite hit right for me in this song. Yeah, so I mean, out the back of Bittersweet Me, we go into B mine. Again, recorded the Bad Animals in Seattle. Another track that features an Ebo. There's a lovely little Ebo solo in it. Mm-hmm. I think it's an adorable wee song. Pretty understated. It's one of those little whispered pines that Michael Stipe seems to love. You know, the very intimate songs where it's almost like they're right up close and just very, very gentle and soft and you get that ASMR feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, admittedly, blossom as the song goes on and the ending is basically this big, cheerful lovey, fluffy kind of instrumental. Mm-hmm. In the second verse, there's a kind of a low bass tone, which is a bit like a drone, which kind of comes in. And it goes kind of kind of waves in and out, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting way of changing up the structure because it's basically the same structure for both the verses, yeah, yeah. which I quite like. And that that Ebo thing is brilliant. I really like that part. The song does kind of bloom towards the end, which yeah. is nice. I mean, it's a bit saccharine, but mm-hmm. it's nice. Uh, Binky the Dormat, the tenth one, recorded live in Phoenix, Arizona. I mean, it's alright, this tune. The changes between the verse and the chorus are kind of reminiscent of some of the older stuff. And I think Mike's No Way refrain you're at, that also kind of takes me back to their early years, a little bit punky and a little bit pointed. Um, it's fine as a song. Yeah, I've, I've kind of said here that the song feels a little bit redundant, to be honest. Um, they've shown me all these tricks before yeah. and probably better on other records. And I think given know? the length of this album, this is one of those ones where you're like, if you were going to be starting to chop stuff out, mm-hmm. which this could probably accommodate, mm-hmm. that would be one of the yeah, ones. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Zither, the 11th one, I mean, it's designed to be throwaway. Mm-hmm. 
could you cut it out? Mm. Yes, obviously you could because the whole point is it's just a little palate cleanser. Mm. Um, it was recorded in a dressing room actually in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cheerful, it's harmless, it's got a lovely wee vibrato over it, but it's really just designed to give you a sort of pause for thought. I think yeah. you're not meant to engage with it too much. I said I've written, it feels like a slow day in a one horse town sort of tune. You know? <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It's like, like it's warm outside. You've kind of got your hat over your eyes. You're leaning back in a chair and like a dog goes by on a bike. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're too stoned to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but it comes straight out of that wee mellow guy and he's so fast, so numb. Which is just an out and out alternative rock song. Mm-hmm. Um, they've really embraced the simple sort of four chord alt rock, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, whatever. Recorded during Soundcheck in Orlando, Florida. I think it actually feels really of a kin with the monster material that they would have been touring at mm. the time. It's one of their most concise and strong tunes in some years. I think just in terms of being very lean and also one that I think it got the mo- some of the most play from me at the time, you know, putting it on mixtapes, putting it on, pl- like, well, mixtapes were playlists, do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it, it's, a, it's a really good direct tune for somebody that was just lapping up alt-rock stuff with a nice hook. Yes, it feels like early, early R.E.M., but they've got some keyboards in it. There's an organ buried in the mix in the verses. There's actually honky-tonk piano in the chorus, which is obviously yeah. something they're bringing yeah. in later on in their career. And there's, yeah, there's a fun... There's some really nice backing vocals that are buried quite low in the mix yeah, as well. they're good, eh? Which work. And the guitar solo is really fuzzy as well, which I quite liked. The 13th one, Low Desert, which is only actually three and a half minutes, which surprised me because it feels a lot fucking longer. <laughs> Uh, recorded during soundcheck in Atlanta, Georgia, the same time as they did leave. Mm. It's seen by some people, I noticed this online, as a bit of a filler track. Um, it has grown to me a bit over the years. Could it still be cut? Probably, but it's definitely a genre tune, and I think that's quite interesting because it. it it feels stonery, it feels subdued, it feels like the heat of the desert is preventing you from getting too animated. And it cements, I think, that transitory road movie type thing going across those baked, yeah. long, straight roads, you know, through dusty mm. nowhere. Um, and, you know, it's something that the artwork tries to capture. And actually, to be honest, no no song fits more with the artwork for me than this tune, mm. as much as I don't think it's a highlight on the record. Is it musically indispensable? No, but I think thematically it really ties the album together very, very well. It's very alt-country. It reminds me of Wilco quite a lot in places, just because it's got electric guitars. and You know, I think, yeah, there's a lot of crossover with that, mm. with Wilco as well. And mm. a lot of, like, old-school R.E.M. fans graduated to Wilco. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Um, the organ and the chorus is a lovely touch. Um, it's got actually it got a cool riff as well that's going on there. I think there's a lot of nice sounds in this song. Mm-hmm. You know, really well yeah. chosen sounds. Yeah. But yeah, I, I like I like the solo actually. It's got a chorus or a phaser. I'm not entirely sure which one it is. Could be both, I guess. Um, at the same time, but. I like that too. Um, but yeah, it definitely has a electric country vibe to it for me. And then they finish with Electrolyte. Which is this th- quite a well-known song for them, yeah? Electrolyte. Uh-huh. I think it's affectionately uh, held in high regard. Mm-hmm. I don't think it wasn't a single. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I am really pleased that they finished the record with this song. It was recorded in Phoenix, Arizona the same day as they did Binky the Doormat. It's a much better song. 
Coldplay or U2s they were not trying to be this multi-million selling band mm. they were writing great music no question they were writing singles no question but they were not doing the things that the 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 10-step plan to be successful they were doing shit like this mm. at the height of their fucking fame it's really odd so I think I would be satisfied even if we don't end up agreeing on whether or not they are particularly good to listen to I would hope we could at least agree to extricate them from that mulch of like garbage normie rock that they so often get lumped in with mm. that to me would represent a victory in this case <laughs> I think in the first episode you said there's a generational thing an age thing I think there is like you probably you're just you're probably just at the end of the people that would actually listen to this mm. you know um, given when you first started listening to them I don't know anybody that likes R.E.M. At all. Well, I mean, I, I know quite a few. I mean, Vicky's an R.E.M. Mm. fan. I've, I've none, nobody, nobody that I know even talks or thinks about R.E.M. Ferrucci was it. a big fan of the early stuff, yeah. at least, yeah. Because just by the time, by time they come around to the attention of people like me, it was like Reveal Era, so they were gone. Yeah, right. that's true. Yeah, they that's were, true. They were totally gone. Out, like, totally irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, completely. And because, coming back to what I said at the start and again in, in the second episode... Because the the, traject- the trajectory of rock music changed, there, there was just never any way that these guys were going to get a look in. Because people that aren't people that it's funny to say a band that sold nearly hundred million records was never going. It's get weird a look though, in. that <laughs> isn't it? Because but look, it's happened to loads of bands over the years as well. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just because grunge was such a force. Yeah. You know, because um, think about it, like in 2001, the, the, the kind of grunge that was kicking about then was post-grunge, it was Puddle of Mud and Nickelback. Yeah. Those bands don't exist without grunge. It probably would be bands that would be like REM sounding, do you know what I mean? Or something similar. So, yeah, I think that's what I, that's what I meant back at the start when I said I think grunge did them dirty. I think there's a big part of their legacy, which is just kind of, it becomes quite uh, hidden, you know? I, I mean, allow me to completely sully the name of R.E.M. by bringing them into the, the same episode but you can't convince me that Deep Blue Something would have been top of the charts for 10 weeks with Bricks at Tiffany's if R.E.M. hadn't been so big I don't think those kind of bands would have been as successful. The Goo Goo Dolls and that kind of soft alternative. The Goo Goo Dolls were kind of in the same realm as like a grunge, but as some of the post-grunge stuff. They were, I mean, they were earlier and they were like soft alternative. So it's like you've, from R.E.M., and that period of breakthrough success, it kind of spawned this period of these acoustic-y things like Counting Crows. And I'm, I'm... I mean, I'm fucking perversely actually a couple of Count Crow songs. I'm like, actually, just for nostalgia value, that's quite nice. But they're corny as shit. They're fucking horrible as a proposition overall. And this all led to like the Natalie and Brulia. I, I don't think, for example, Alanis Morissette would have been, the scene wouldn't have been set the same if it wasn't for bands like R.E.M. and that movement. I don't think Natalie and Brulia, I don't think... Deep Blue something. I mean, we spoke about the Rembrandts. The Rembrandts got the Friends gig because they didn't want to use shiny happy mm-hmm. people in the end. Maybe it was a licensing fee or something like that. But like that, the Rembrandts are part of that sort of era of American like light alternative pop. Yeah, I, I think you're. I think I think that's a fair uh, observation. But grunge just did something in that 
uh, united that people that liked alternative rock, people that liked heavy music, right? Mm-hmm. And the two kind of, it just it was like such a part, yeah. <laughs> it just had so much momentum that it really kind of blew apart any kind of connection that would have been there. Maybe maybe bands like the ones you mentioned would have been more prominent to people who liked rock music. Like like me, if there just wasn't other things there that were heavier and more angry and angular. Yeah, but I mean, Deep Blue is something were fucking number one for ten weeks. They were. Uh-huh. And I just do not think that would have happened in a world where Automatic for the People hadn't been the mm. album that it was. Yeah. So I think the... But the kids weren't going to listen to it, though, you know? Yeah, no, that's true, but I mean... And that's ultimately, at the end of the day, what these people try to buy. Yeah, but it influenced a lot about pop culture beyond mm-hmm. the alternative. Um, and that's what I think what Elizabeth Wurzel was saying. The alternative became the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, stuff like Counting Crows and Natalie Imbruglia were trying to feign being alternative, like Hootie and the fucking Blowfish, trying to be alternative. Fuck, even over here, the Lighthouse family were almost like, is that an alternative band or is that a pop band? And that was the result. Of this blurring of the boundaries, yeah, and REM, mm. I do not believe for a minute have any actual culpability for that. Mm. But they became one of the be- biggest examples of it. Mm. Another thing which kind of comes to mind is, without grunge, I guess pop punk doesn't happen, and a lot of alternative pop acts start to use the big slices of guitars that are yeah. quite prevalent in that music. You know, Avril Lavigne. Like name any other female vaguely rockish artist. Equally without Alanis Morissette, Avril Lavigne probably doesn't become Avril Mm. Lavigne. And I don't think Alanis Morissette ends up doing what she did without a table that is set for grunge light kind of alternative indie mainstream Mm -hmm. music. So, yeah. I mean, you can't, we can't disentangle this in any way. It's all interconnected it is. I just like, I think, yeah, they they just passed me by. So Do you fucking hate them? That's what I'm getting at. I hate I hate parts of them and I haven't listened to them so much, but I can stand back and I appreciate some you can of the. See, there's a good playlist in there. There's a, the best of it is really good. Right, that's you that's, know I, I take it's that very listenable. Apart from a couple of songs which we've spoken about, like Shine Happy People, which can fuck off and yeah, you know, like kind of and stuff. do we agree they are not the Coldplay of 1992? I would never have called it that in the first place, but um, fuck <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad to prove to myself that they're not the Coldplay of 1992. <laughs> I'll be honest. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, I, I mean, it's not a resounding victory, but it's a small victory, and that's. Enough. I'm glad I listened to them. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I like to. The, I like that my knowledge has been deepened. We will know. do a playlist, and you will get a say in it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a small say in it. <laughs> um, but what we'll also do is the Nexus. complicated series of connections between different things um and so just as a recap for people that are not familiar with the nexus we uh generally speaking a listener nominates somebody anybody a character a real person a politician a movie star garfield 
Who fucking cares? Anybody. And then we have to try and link them like six degrees of Kevin Bacon to the artist of the week. This week, Mark actually had nominated the person and the person you nominated was... Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. Don't know why it came into my head, but... Um, and so we have to link Mary Shelley to R.E.M. Um, and because the album this week was my choice, I have to go first. You do. So this is the Nexus. R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe... Mm-hmm. spoke out in praise of Greta Thunberg uh, and Greta Thunberg's discussion of her autism diagnosis in 2019. I think he actually said that it brought him to tears. Um, and Greta Thunberg chooses to refer to that autism diagnosis as Asperger's syndrome. One of a variety of or disorders which are on a spectrum of autism. There are people that would say that Asperger's ADS? doesn't exist because it's just on the spectrum of autistic. Well... There's other people that would say Asperger's doesn't exist because, oh, we don't want to talk about that. Because that phrase has fallen out of favour since it is named after uh, an Austrian doctor uh, named Hans Asperger. He first used the term autistic psychosis in 1938, which was really, really early in the uh, medical awareness of autism Mm -hmm. in general, uh, or acknowledgement at least. Um, And he did advance the knowledge on the subject greatly. Just Nazis. Yes, of course, it's me. (laughs) Of course it's Nazis, right? He advanced the knowledge in the subject greatly because, yeah, it was a massively neglected part of of popular science. Going back centuries, it was like, oh, they're possessed. Oh, it's fucking like, you know, Mm -hmm. even um, fairy stories, you know, Irish stories are like fairies stealing children and replacing them with like lookalikes, doppelgangers. Mm. Like um, Naomi Klein talks about that in the Doppelganger book as well, about how some of them, their children were autistic mm. and they just imagined that their baby that was perfect had been stolen by the fairies and replaced by this baby that was dysfunctional. Um, so Hans Asperger did a lot of actually really positive work in that field. However, he then went on to use that diagnosis, Asperger's diagnosis, to practice race hygiene under the Nazis uh, following them taking control in Vienna. And he rather enthusiastically, uh, has to be said, helped send hundreds hundreds of children to institutions knowing that there was no way out of those institutions the only way out of those institutions was death those children were euthanized in those institutions um, as the nazis sought to purify the bloodlines of conditions like that as well as physical um, disabilities as we know hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives to that uh, campaign and hans asperger unfortunately played a really large part in that so the fact that that his name continues in that diagnosis is very, uh, it sits very uneasily with a lot of people and I can totally understand that. Autistic spectrum disorders is what we're going to be called. Uh, Also born in Austria and a member of the Nazi party was the notorious Joseph Blusche, Mm -hmm. the subject of a, he was a number of, he was in a a load of famous photos of that era actually, including one of them uh, during the suppression of the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto that features him pointing this massive submachine gun at a young child that's surrendering. Um, Belushi was uh, well known to the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto uh, due to his brutality and his sexual violence in the ghetto and they nicknamed him Frankenstein after the monster from Mary Shelley's book which I must say, first of all, Frankenstein as we know was the doctor, not the monster Mm -hmm. and is somewhat unfair because in the book the monster's monstrous acts are monstrous acts as a result of society rejecting him mm-hmm. and Joseph Blush's monstrous acts were a result of Joseph Blush being a piece of shit yep 
Exactly. Frankenstein's monster is often misunderstood, isn't it? Cross. Hey, hey. Over to you. Mm. Mine is fairly short. Uh, Mary Shelley was a famous author. What? Wow. I really wanted to do a, a whole bunch about uh, Percy. She, uh, oh, Percy Blythe yeah, Shelley. Percy Blythe Shelley. Um, because that guy was fucking wild. She's also got like a bunch of semi-famous and sometimes illegitimate siblings as well. Yeah. Uh, Wilson um, Crofts. Yeah. Because her mum was Mary Wilson Croft, so yeah, famous feminist mm. A wee bit, uh, you know, her mum was a famous feminist, mm. and she liked her whole... Yeah, so did uh, so did Percy Blythe <laughs> Shelley. Um, so there was a film about uh, Mary Shelley um, released in 2017, and she was played by Ellie Fanning. Oh, yeah. One of her first roles was in The Door and the Floor, which is a family film starring Jeff Bridges and Kevin Bassinger. Mm-hmm. And uh, turns out that Kevin Bastier is from Athens, Georgia. What? Yeah. So wow. my, my ex just came to a shuddering halt. That's <laughs> amazing. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, fuck, okay, I guess. Because Ellie Fanning is from a... a, a and she a, must be about the same age as I am as well. No, she's 70. What? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's another what? Fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, Ellie Fanning and Dakota Fanning are from a really small town in, in Georgia, but it's actually in the Atlanta region. It's not near Athens. Um, so I was trying to make that connection and I just stumbled upon Kim Bassinger being <laughs> from, uh, That's from, wild, from eh? Athens. Yeah, but a fun fact, get the Prince alarm ready. <laughs> oh. So after her first divorce, she briefly dated Prince. That was when Prince was doing the soundtrack for Batman, which of course she was in. Um, she actually recorded an album with Prince. That's mad. Called um, Hollywood Affair, but it's never been released. Are there samples anywhere? I don't know. Right, okay, that's no idea. Obviously, if this is complete silence now, I didn't find it. <laughs> Yeah, apparently it's never seen the light of day, so... But if that wasn't complete silence... That has seen the light of day. It's great. Yeah. That's class. Well mm. done. All right, cool. Uh, okay, we're not actually sure what next week's going to be because we're uh, fluctuating between a few possible episodes, so we'll get back to you on that. But we hope you've enjoyed this incredibly exhaustive dive into REM. Mm. And, uh, well, I guess for a lot of you as well, the new format of the pod at the mm. moment. If you don't like ads, Mark... Patreon.com for slash unsung pod. Four quid a month gets you to our Access All Areas Club. Yeah. Fifteen quid a month gets you music sent straight to you, curated by us mm. and bought from independent bands and artists uh, around the world. Yes. So we would encourage you to give that some thought. Uh, but yeah, we will be back with another show very soon, uh, uh, as soon as we can coordinate interviews, back injuries, exploding appendix, append- appendices, appendices. appendices. Uh-huh. Mm. all right. Take it easy. See you next week. Bye.